Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Wanted to read some passages this evening from predominantly Acts and Corinthians. And we're going to read about a man, his name was Paul. And one of the things that he did was he traveled. He wasn't a believer to start with, as most of us aren't. And then he had an encounter with Jesus one day on a road to Damascus. And he realized that this Jesus really is who he says he is. And his life turned upside down and he began to be a preacher. Not only a, a preacher, not only somebody who would go and tell people of Jesus, but he would invest and build into their lives. And by the time Paul left, there was normally a group of believers, a church already gathered. And then he would impart to them, he would teach them. And so we see here in Acts chapter 20, the book of Acts is short. Actually, the Acts of the Apostles, it's written by a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor. And before I get too much into that, one other thing that I just wanted to say is thank you so much for all of you who've been giving. I know some of you gave towards um, our relief work in Ukraine, and some of you are still giving, and you can continue to give. On the WhatsApp group this week, I'll post a video from a pastor in Ukraine who God has been using just to bring hope to people, but also to bring food to people and clothing, and just a great story that he tells of before the war, how God even spoke to them about getting a place where they can store things and to begin to to get a storehouse just like Joseph and to begin to store things, food and non-perishable foods and hygienic things, nappies, etc. for babies. And they stored all of this and, and now they're just in a great position in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, just to be able to, in the midst of the crisis, to be able to be a light. And thank you so much for those who've given, and we're continuing to support them, and we continue to support them. Um, and then also I often get asked, because we haven't taken up an offering since the 26th of March, 2020, which is when COVID lockdown started, which can you believe is more than two years ago. Um, but I want to thank you for those of you who've been around, who continue to give, and have just been so faithful in your giving. From time to time, especially sort of more, some of you guys who are newer, you ask, how can we give? Where can I give? And you stick some money in my hand, which I then have to be very deliberate to not spend because that would be stealing, and to take it to, to the church's coffers and be used for the right things. Um, we're still figuring out exactly how we want to do this going forward. We don't quite want to go back to the place where every week someone stands up and talks about money because money is important, but money definitely is not the most important thing in church life even though Jesus does talk a heck of a lot to us about money. And so for now, we're going to be cashless. We just think it's safer and easier and, and better for everybody not to have an amount of money floating around and just tempt people, busy street corner, etc., etc., that we are here. And so we do want to ask if you want to give, obviously, we appreciate it. We think it's a biblical mandate to give. Don't want to speak too much about that. But if you want to give, then on the way out, there are, um, and at the coffee station as well, there's a QR code. If you want to snap scan, most banks can do that today. And our bank details are there as well. And the easiest, we think, for everybody is just to use an electronic method rather than having um, cash floating around and create temptation um, and other, all of the hazards gathered with that. So for now, we're going to do that. I hope that makes sense. But I just want to thank you so much for those of you who have been giving and are giving. We really, really do. Appreciate that. And so on the first day of the week, I said with the guys just before the service as we prayed, we sometimes miss today, Sunday, isn't the last day of the week. Normally we come together on a Sunday and we ask people, how has your week been? And kind of are you ready for this coming week? And what we should actually say, kind of if we want to be totally technical about it, is how was last week been? And are you ready for this week? So it's sort of already started. So don't know, kind of don't need to be legalistic about that. But on the first day of the week, sometimes people kind of argue and say that Christians shouldn't meet on the first day of the week. It seems to be the norm, at least in some of the churches, that there were gatherings on the first day of the week. 
And so when we, the we here is Luke, who's the doctor, who is writing the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke, and he was Paul's travel companion. He traveled pretty much everywhere with Paul, and he documented what was happening. And so this is Paul and Luke and some others who were traveling. When we were gathered together to break bread. So what's happened here is Paul has been traveling. He's been preaching. He's been planting churches, seeing disciples raised. He is sort of on the way traveling. I think he's heading towards Jerusalem at this stage. And he meets with this group of believers. And he stays there for a week. And they gather together to break bread on the first day of the week. And we're going to see this phrase a lot this evening about breaking bread. The phrase can have a very practical interpretation. Sometimes it means exactly that. It literally just means having a meal. Most meals in this time, in this culture, in this age, would have involved bread. And sort of, if you, I don't know if you guys have ever sat at a meal when there is a big bread. It's really hard to eat the bread until someone cuts the bread or in their context breaks the bread. So the meal starts when somebody breaks bread. And breaking of bread in this context literally just meals means we're having a meal. It can also mean a specific type of meal. We're going to look at that in a bit this evening. It can mean a, a meal which we also call the Lord's Supper, or if you want to get theological about it, we call it the Eucharist, communion, and that's a specific meal, a specific heart behind the meal, more than the meal itself. And so they gather together to break bread. And within the context that we see specifically it's used here, this church is gathering together on the first day of the week for a specific meal. This is the Lord's Supper. They're gathering together to eat specifically a meal dedicated to God. Paul talked with him, and I, that's kind of all I just wanted to say about this verse, but I, I like the rest of the stories, so we can read it as well. So Paul talked with him, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So if kind of midnight comes around tonight, then I'm in good company. And he's carrying on, and he's talking, and he's talking, and Paul is standing there, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul's talked still longer. So tonight, perhaps even you want to fall asleep, and that'll be fantastic. I'll feel very apostolic if you're falling asleep. Sometimes we read kind of Paul's books, and we're like, are he hanging on his lips? This guy was falling asleep. Even the great apostle Paul, people fell asleep. When, I was speak, when he was speaking. And so this guy sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So this is like past midnight now. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. How's that for Paul's ministry CV? I preached a man to death. Okay. Remember, this is Luke writing this, a doctor. A physician. This isn't just some guy who looks at this guy and he looked like he was sort of kind of dead. The doctor knows what a dead guy looks like. He looks at him. He realizes this man is dead. But Paul went down and he bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, he had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak. And so departed, and they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Isn't that a crazy story? Imagine having been at that meeting, going home, kind of, you're this guy's buddy, and you was brother, and you get home after daybreak. And mom's like, where were you last night? Mom, you will never believe. <laughs> what happened? Well, we were sitting there, and this guy was talking. It was really interesting, but you know how he is. He fell asleep, and he fell out the window, and he died. And then this guy went, and he picked him up, and he became alive again. And then he carried on talking, as if we hadn't slept enough, until daybreak. And then he left. But in the midst of this, there was eating going on. We see that there, there was a breaking of bread, and then the guys who study the text and the way these words are put together, they tell us what probably happened is, Towards the end, there's two things that happen here. The second time, he's breaking bread and eating. 
the first time and was just breaking bread. Here we're breaking bread and eating. And the point that they believe this text is trying to convey that there was a specific meal. There was a specific Lord's Supper. There was a specific moment of communion as well as a meal that took place. Actually, if we read Scripture, I think Scripture lines up a lot with our lives in the sense that eating is a big theme in Scripture. And it's probably a big theme in your life. One of the first things that we ever see people doing is eating. The wrong thing, in their case, Adam and Eve eating. We see Moses in the wilderness, and they were eating manna on the bread. Ach, manna on the bread. Manna from the wilderness every day, this bread that wake up and there'd be bread. We read in Psalm 23 that God leads us into a table which he prepares for us in front of our enemies. That's not a study table. It's a dining table. And so throughout Scripture, there's all of this eating going on. Jesus at one stage, he's been fasting for 40 days, not eating. And then the enemy comes, and what does the devil tempt him with? To turn the rock into a bread. All of these great stories, so many of them, I'm just touching on them. There's eating going on all over Scripture. Jesus then replies in that moment, he says, we will not live by bread alone. We will live by what the Lord provides for us. We will live by the Word of God every single day. And I want to encourage you. Maybe I can be a bit naughty. Who of us here is coffee drinkers? Do we have any coffee drinkers in the house? I'm going to challenge you. Can I kind of challenge you off the charts a little bit? Tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday morning, what if you say to yourself, I'm not going to have a cup of coffee until I've heard the Lord's voice? I know some of us can't start our lives until we've had a cup of coffee. But if, what if we were to say, God, I don't want to start my life until I've heard your voice. God, I want to hear your voice. Lord, when I wake up in the morning more than I need a cup of coffee, Lord, I need your voice in my life. I'm not going to judge you if you don't, but hey, that's something perhaps to consider. To think, God, I, I want to be hungry. I don't want to live by coffee alone. If, if I think if scripture was written today, that's what it would say. Man shall not live by coffee alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus says in John chapter 6, and here's a great Bible study to go and do a little bit. Jesus speaks, himself, speaks about himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6. What a, a long passage. We don't have time to get into that all tonight. But he, he says at one stage, he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my cup, drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And then the people who are following him, they're like, this guy's weird. We can't do that. We can't follow this man. And then what the Bible says to us is that many of his disciples departed from him. They didn't follow him anymore because of what he said. And so today I want us to look a little bit at this eating the bread of life. Eating his body and drinking his blood. We see there that the church came together on the first day. It's definitely not clear, but it does seem to be a, a regular custom that they'd come together on the first day as a church to eat a meal together. We see sort of something similar in Acts chapter 2, where we get this great picture of the early church in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four things that the early church really committed themselves to. Good doctrine, good people, good fellowship, good food, the breaking of bread, and good praying. Four things that if we make those part of our lives, we will be part of a vibrant, healthy community, which we call a church. People who are following Christ, but central to that is they were breaking bread. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. So, 
In Acts 20, it looks like it was a regular custom that the church in that town would come together on the first day of the week to have a meal. In Acts, it definitely was a custom that they would get together regularly to have a meal. And so they would get together in, in two ways. They would get together in large groups in the temple regularly. They would get together in groups where ministry obviously would happen. And I'm assuming there would be singing of hymns. I'm assuming there would be teaching. And we see that sort of in church history coming through. We know that they would come together. There would be somebody giving instruction. We read here that they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. This is where the apostolic doctrine would be communicated, where there would be teaching, where there would be growing in that sense. They'd also come together in their homes. And in their homes, they would eat. And so one of the reasons why we do small groups is a bit of a, a model on this. We want to come together in, in small groups where we can all count, where we can all matter, where we're not all going to get lost. It's easy to slip into, even tonight where we were a smallish crowd, it's easy to slip in and to slip out. It's much harder to do that when we're only six or seven. When we're only six or seven in the room, it's, we, don't, we get missed when we're not there. When we're only six or seven in the room, we can be prayed for. When we're only six or seven in the room, we get an opportunity to say what's going on. And so for us, small groups are central to who we are. Small groups are such an important, play such an important part, such an important role in every one of us being healthily cared for and growing. We don't want to be a church where people just slip in and slip out and we hear a message and our life goes on. Small group is a bit of a time where we stop and we pause and we make sure that we're finding ways to apply the word to our lives. Small group is also an opportunity to eat together. Sometimes just a packet of chips. I know sometimes when we're students, that's all we can afford. But there's something that happens when we eat together. It certainly was a regular custom in Jerusalem that the church would eat together regularly. Perhaps not all of them in big groups, but in their homes they would get together and they would share meals. We see here this eating together is one of two ordinances or two sacraments, and there's a technical difference between the two. It's probably more an ordinance than a sacrament. I'm not going to get too much into that now. That Jesus left with us. And the first one is baptism. We loved at Life Encounter yesterday, just being able to speak about baptism. Just the joy of what it means to surrender to Christ. And those of us who've been baptized, we understand that baptism, that place where we go under the water and we come up out of the water, it's a symbol. It's a sign of a life that's been surrendered to Christ. But it is so much more than a symbol. It is a symbol, but it also has an effect in itself. It's not just a symbol. That in our baptism, something actually happens in the Spirit. That in our baptism, something changes in the spiritual dimension. Our being baptized isn't purely a symbol. It's not only something symbolic we do. It is also something profoundly spiritual that changes things. So in the same way, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it is symbolic, but it's more than only being symbolic. There's actually an element of grace that we receive. There's an element of God's presence. There's an element of who Jesus is that we receive and can only receive through the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, kind of, we pick it up the way I'm going to pick it up tonight for us in Matthew 26. It's also in Mark. It's also in Luke. It's also in John. It's in all four of the Gospels. The story gets counted in sort of different viewpoints as different people have been sitting at different parts of the table, but it's the same story. But it goes much further with that. It goes to a, a meal we would call the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a really important meal in the history of the, of the Israelites. They'd been living as slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, and they were really living in atrocious conditions, being treated super harshly by the slave owners, the Egyptians. And so the Israelites, at, at one stage, they're crying out to God, and God hears their cry, and He sends a man by the name of Moses to set them free. There are nine plagues from just a bunch of Lots and lots and lots of michis, which I can imagine is enough. You want to kill anybody. Blood in the rivers, just 
a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in their city and in their country. And they don't want to let the Israelites go. And at the end, God says, okay, it's time for judgment. He's going to judge the firstborn of every family. And then he has them eat a, the Israelites a specific meal. And as part of the meal, it's called the Passover meal. He says the angel of death, because part of the meal, they would slaughter a, a sheep. And they would take the blood of the sheep and they would paint it on the doorposts. And everyone who was in a home that had blood on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over. And that's where the Passover meal comes from. Thousands of years later, Jesus comes and he fulfills every single thing that needed to happen within the Passover meal. Jesus fulfills that perfectly as the perfect lamb. And his blood gets painted on the doorposts effectively. And so they eat, they come together to eat the Passover meal. It's not just any meal, it's a specific time that they're coming together. And as they were eating in Matthew 26, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my body that you are eating. It's a, a symbol, it's a representation of my body, but it's one of those mysteries that we're not ever going to understand this side of eternity, it's more than just a representation. Yes, it is a symbol of my body, but we'll see in a moment it's more than just a symbol. Some people take this so far as to say that when we eat of the bread, it actually becomes the body, the meat of Christ in our mouths. I don't think that's accurate theologically or just physically. But what does happen is something precious, something mysterious in the Spirit happens. Just like our baptism, we can't fully understand it. We know it is powerful. We know something changes. But it is really hard to write a scientific paper on exactly what has changed. Because there's an element of mystery to it. So as we come to the Lord's table, there's an element of mystery. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so here we see the start of the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper initially happened around the Passover meal. And the Passover meal is a representation of Jesus as the perfect lamb. But the Lord's Supper isn't the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is every time we take the bread and we take the wine. And we eat it in a special way. We eat it in remembrance. We eat it in commemoration. We eat it in that symbolic way, pointing to Christ with an understanding that it's so much more than a symbol. In 1 Corinthians, the same Apostle Paul, one of the towns that he's been to where he's invested into lives, where people have begun to follow Christ, is a church called Corinth. And he writes two letters to them, which we have today as part of our scriptures, called 1 Corinthians, or the first letter to the Corinthians, and the second letter to the Corinthians. And we just call it 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, he is far away. Obviously, we don't have telegrams, definitely not the app telegram. Not telegrams with beep, 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 sending messages. He's writing a letter. And this letter would be taken by a courier who would probably walk for days, if not weeks, to carry this message to them. So communication is few and far between, but he's hearing some things that are happening in this church. and Some of it he's encouraged by, some of it he's troubled by. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians, he actually brings a lot of correction. He brings a lot of instruction. He says to the church in Corinth, guys, there are some things that you guys need to sort out. And he's writing to this letter to them as an apostolic figure, as the one who planted, who imparted into their lives we saw earlier the importance of apostolic doctrine. In other words, believing what the apostles held on to. And he says, I'm going to bring some correction to your understanding. And one of the areas that he brings correction to is he speaks to them about idolatry, certain practices of idolatry that they've fallen into. And in the midst of that, he gives us a glimpse of the power of communion, the Lord's Supper. In the context of idolatry, he drops these two sentences, or these two, as we have them today, verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
He says the cup of blessing that we bless, referring to the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? I want to pause there because this word participation is really important. Participation is the Greek word koinonia. Some of us may have heard that word before. It also means it often is translated as fellowship, partaking of, sharing in, being a part of. It's not a spectating. It's not a standing aside and watching. It's not I'm participating in the Springbok rugby match or the Bafana game where I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know how many of you guys, you know, sometimes I participate in sports matches. I participate by screaming at my TV. And I think the more I scream at my TV, the faster they're actually, if I scream loud enough at my TV, they're going to hear my brilliant plan and they're actually going to change their game plan because I know better. Uh, Cornell laughs because he's one of me too. Uh, but, but we participate. That's not what it means here. The participation here is we're actually on the field. We're actually contributing. We're actually involved in what is happening there. And this is that mystery that we will not understand this side of eternity, that the cup of blessing that we bless, when we drink of the cup, is it not a participation in the blood? We're participating in the single most holy moment in all of eternity. The moment that defined and changed all of life. The moment where Christ, the God-man, the man who came and dwelt among sinners, he was born of a virgin Mary, perfect, sinless, lived his life, decided to die for you and for me. You have his bloodshed. holy moment in which the whole of eternity revolves around that single moment. And in some crazy way, the Bible says to us that when we bless that cup, when we drink of that cup, are we not participating in that moment? Are we not in some way involved in that moment? Are we not in some way included in that moment? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. I think many of us probably, hopefully, have we've been in church, we've heard messages on the Lord's Supper. Often we've heard sort of these verses, perhaps, and the verses I read earlier, where Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. We've heard those. But I wonder how much in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, in our coming to church, even the Communion has become another thing we do as Christians. I was at a talk recently where a famous preacher was preaching, and he he made this point, and I guess as a famous preacher, he can preach this because he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to paraphrase him a lot, but it comes down to this, that he says he's troubled often by church. He didn't use this example, but this is what it comes down to, that if we, let's take our church, if we were to put his name on a poster on Instagram to say, this guy is preaching in our church on Sunday, the chances are good that our church would be pretty full. A lot of people would come to listen to this guy sharing, would come to hear his insights and his wisdom, would come to experience what God has revealed to him. It's not necessarily bad. But if we were to make an Instagram post to say, we're having communion This Sunday, our church would probably look the same as it does every other Sunday. That we've lost something about an awe of our participation in the body, that we are are more drawn to the celebrity speaker, and he used the term, so won't mind me using it. We're probably more drawn to the celebrity speaker than we are to the body of Christ. We're more drawn to fame and entertainment than the cross of Christ. I want us this evening, perhaps for a moment, just to consider a little bit how we approach the cross of Christ. Do we see it as a participation? Do we see this as potentially the single most significant thing that we can do as Christians in our private lives with God is to partake in communion? When the communion cup is passed around, and we're going to do this a little bit later this evening, and 
when the bread is passed around, do we just sort of do it, but our mind is on a bunch of different places? Or do we actually slow down? Stop. For a moment, look at the cross of Jesus. Remind ourselves that this isn't just any other moment. This isn't just something else that's happening on TV and we can fast forward and remind. This is a participation in the most holy moment that has ever existed. Same guy who spoke, he says he's not much of an athlete, but he started jogging a little bit and he decided that one day when he was a little bit fitter, he's going to run. And he's going to run until he can pray the Lord's Prayer without being distracted. He ended up running 12 kilometers. Because he'd pray, Our Father, oh, my kids are going to be late. Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A TV show is coming on later. Our Father, who art in heaven. I must remember to phone this guy. Our Father, who art in heaven. I wonder how far you and I would have to run. And it's not about praying the Lord's Prayer as such. It's about being able to be undistracted before Christ. That was just what He happened to use. When we come to communion, are we able to zoom out? Have we developed that discipline to just pause for a moment and just stop and say, God, right now, nothing else matters but the cross of Christ. So Paul carries on writing, and he, after 1 Corinthians 10, he encourages in the first half of 1 Corinthians 11, he encourages the church. He says, you guys are doing some stuff really well. Keep at it. It's good hearing the stories. But then he says, there's something that you're not doing very well. And it happens to be communion. In 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you, and what's this here? When you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. There is a coming together that they are doing. And they're coming together, and the context we'll see now they're not coming like we're going to do in a moment and just have a small piece of cracker and some grape juice. They're actually coming together for a meal. They're coming together regularly for meals. And this has actually come to Paul's attention, how they come together. And Paul's actually saying, guys, you think you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, but I've got bad news for you. You're not. It is not the Lord's Supper. That which you're eating, it may be a great meal, it might be great food, but it's not the Lord's Supper. You're coming together, but you're not coming together around the body of Christ. You're coming together for maybe some other things, maybe even good reasons. But the one thing this is not, it's not what Christ instituted. He says here, he carries on, and he says, For in eating, and this is why it's not the Lord's Supper, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and Another gets drunk. See, there's enough food here for one to be satisfied, one to be hungry. There's enough alcohol here to get drunk. It's not just a couple of drops like we're drinking here. It's a meal that they're having. What? what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What you guys are doing here is not right. He's saying that your love for the church is demonstrated in how you eat. As a matter of fact, you guys don't love the church. You are despising the church. And why I say you're despising the church is because of how you eat. Not the what you eat, how you eat. You're coming together and you're having a meal, but you're not having a meal where you're Considering the people around you. 
maybe in our modern sense, perhaps, you know, the one guy's coming with his fillet steak and the other guy has got half a packet of two-minute noodles. And he says, you look at that and you're okay with that, and that's not right. He says, if you want to have your fillet steak, by all means, that's what your home is for. Go home and have your fillet steak. But when we come to Heather here, it's not about the food as much as it's about partaking in the body of Christ. We're coming together not to satisfy a physical desire and a physical need. We're coming together to satisfy a spiritual need. We're coming together in a way that is different to just another ordinary meal. And you're missing that, is what he's saying to them here. You're missing the purpose. You're missing the reason. You're seeing this as just another meal. It's not just another meal. This is a holy meal. This is a meal which is set apart. This is a meal which is different. But you are not treating it different. You're treating it as just another meal. And that needs to change. It's not just another meal. It's something holy. It's something set apart. I wonder when we come to the Lord's Supper, do we slow down and think, whether I'm eating a meal as the Lord's Supper, whether I'm eating just a morsel. This is is not something to be taken lightly. This is different to my Friday night fry with my buddies. My Friday night fry with my buddies is great. There's nothing wrong with it. But this is not my Friday night fry with my buddies. There is something powerful is a participation in the body of Christ that is happening in this moment. And I want to revere that. I want to honor that. I want to celebrate that. In my doing that, I'm inviting the presence of the living God into my life, tying into it. John was again last week, and I want to do that deliberately. Paul carries on. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup of the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are two things here that he highlights for us that clearly happen when we come together for the Lord's Supper. The one is we remember. We remember. We remember what he did. We remember who he is. We remember what it means. We take a moment of remembrance. But he says it's more than that. It's a proclamation. It's a declaration. We are not only remembering and looking back. We are also hoping and looking forward. We are also proclaiming his death and implicit in the wording here, it's not just his death, it's also his resurrection. We're reminding ourselves that Christ died, but we're also reminding ourselves that he stood up. We're reminding ourselves that he is the reason for the hope that is in us. We're reminding ourselves that we're probably not okay, but he is the one who makes us We're reminding ourselves that he paid the ultimate price, not because I'm perfect, not because I've got nothing going, not because I've got everything sorted in my life, there's no sin in my life, no. But there is sin in my life. There is stuff that's broken in my life. There is stuff that's falling apart, and that's exactly why he died. That's why I'm looking forward to all that is coming, and I'm proclaiming it. There's a spiritual proclamation that is happening every time when I step into the Lord's Supper. And then, I wonder when last we had communion, and before we did, somebody stopped and said, just by the way, this meal you're about to eat, there is a pretty big warning label that comes with it. Beware. Do not take lightly. And Paul does that here in in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Can I just quickly pause there? Throughout this text, the body has appeared a couple of times. and There's a beautiful parallel here in the body of Christ. Because on one side, there is the body of Christ, the physical body that God incarnate, it lived in, that was broken for you and for me. But at the same time, we also see his saying, our discerning of the body is not just his physical body that was broken. Our discerning of the body is also his body that is represented in the church. He is upset with the church in Corinth because they're coming together and they're not discerning the body. They're not looking at the people around them when they are eating. They're coming in a selfish way. They're coming in a, I lift myself up way. I'm having my great, I'm hungry and I'm drinking way too much. I'm not hungry. I'm famished. I'm eating way too much. And you're hungry. He says, that's not right. That's not discerning the body. That's not understanding that I am a part of a whole. And so he comes and he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 30 is just totally, totally crazy. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. When is the last time you had communion? And they were passing around the communion and said, oh, by the way, this might kill you. Because that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying if, if we don't approach this right, and I believe this is something, I guess, me as an individual, definitely, perhaps us as a church, maybe even a, a large part of the church, we've lost our reverence for communion. We've lost our understanding that this is something that could kill me. This is something that is holy. This is something that is beautiful. This is something that is precious. This is something that is an absolute invitation to life. It is so incredibly powerful. And like all powerful things, if used wrong, can be destructive. If used right, can bring an understanding and a participation, a fellowship with God that nothing else can. There is a part to understanding, to knowing, to experiencing God we can only experience or receive through communion. There are certain things of Him that we are not going to receive in any other way. So we say some of you are sick, some of you are ill, some of you have died. Because you have not judged yourself. So what he's saying there, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. A bunch of you guys are still students here. Am I right? Hopefully. Isn't it pretty cool when you're a student and you've written the test and you get to mark your own test? We're laughing. It's better than having somebody else mark your test, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here? That you can come and you can judge yourself at the cross of Christ. You can judge yourself in the light of His blood and His body. And if you judge yourself, you're sparing yourself God's judgment. See, what is he saying here? He says it because the guilt, the shame part of us would say, oh, I can't eat of the bread and I can't drink of the cup because I've got sin in my life. I'm unworthy. It's not what he's saying. Drinking of the cup and eating of the bread in an unworthy manner doesn't mean I'm doing it when there's sin in my life. And a worthy manner is when there is no sin in my life because newsflash, none of us would ever eat or drink. It's missing the whole point. The whole point of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is that I cannot take my own sin away. Jesus needed to die. He needed to shed his blood to take my sin away. He needed to have his body broken so that I could be made whole. And so kind of waiting for me to have myself fixed out and sorted and made whole before is never going to happen. 
because it's exactly the body and the blood that makes me whole. So coming with an, in an unworthy manner isn't coming when I'm aware of my sin. Coming in an unworthy manner is when I'm prideful of my sin. Coming in an unworthy manner is when I come to the cross of Christ, the broken body, the shed blood, and I'm like, God, there is sin in my life, and that's okay. God, there's stuff in my life that's broken, and actually I'd prefer Jesus if he didn't fix it. Jesus, there's sin in my life that's not glorifying to you, but hey, guess what? I'm going to carry on anyway. That's drinking in an unworthy manner. What is drinking in a worthy manner? Standing at the cross with the bread and with the wine, saying, Jesus, there's sin in my life. You died on the cross for us. This is the very reason why you gave yourself to Jesus. Would you come and wash my sin away? God, as I eat this bread, God, would you come and make my brokenness whole? God, I need you to come and restore. I need you to make right, God. You see, it's not about being right before we come. It's an understanding that in coming to him, he makes us right. So coming in an unworthy manner isn't whether we've got sin or not. It's whether we allow him Totally the wrong word, but it's the word that comes to mind now, to interfere in our sin. It's whether we allow him to come and to change, whether we're willing to say, God, I'm wrong. I am wrong. What I think is wrong, what I feel is wrong. God, there's stuff about me that is wrong in your eyes. Would you come and make it right? Because then what's happening? We're judging we're marking our own example. We're acknowledging our sin before God, and we don't need God to come and judge it because we've judged ourselves. So he says, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged by him is the implication. But when we are judged by him, we are disciplined. So he says three things can happen. We can judge ourselves. First prize. He can judge us. And his judgment comes with discipline. But his discipline is redemptive so that we are not condemned. There's a difference between judgment and condemnation. Condemnation is that eternal punishment. He says he doesn't want us to be condemned with the world. And that's why he judges us. But before that, when we come to the blood, when we come to the body, when we come to the cross, he says you can judge yourself. If you judge yourself rightly, you will not be judged by It's not just another bite to eat. It's not just another meal to have. And so in the next while, we're going to be praying about this a little bit. We're going to be figuring it out. We're probably going to get it wrong, and I'm okay with it. We're probably a year from now going to look at it and say, oh, can you believe we actually did that? That was stupid. We're going to begin to find ways to eat together. In small groups, if you're a small group facilitator on our Ask you, start praying about this. Say, God, what does this look like in my small group context? God, how can I make a Wednesday night or whenever it is, get together meal? God, how can I make a difference to the world? Maybe it's just taking two minutes at the start, just in reverence. Maybe it's just that. Maybe God's going to show us something else. Maybe it is slowing down. Maybe it's being deliberate. Saying this morning, the church that I grew up in, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that church. You know, I love but it's the body of Christ, and I love it. But you know, there's so much stuff in that church that looking back, I don't agree with. But something that they got right was the communion Sunday wasn't just another Sunday. Communion Sunday was special. Communion Sunday was different. There were even a whole even a whole bunch of people. The only time in the year they would go to church would be on the three or four communion Sundays that the church had in a year. And despite all of the other failings, there's something in that that is right and that is glorious. 
not only going to church on communion Sunday, but reverencing communion. Knowing that communion matters. Communion matters to God and communion should matter to us. It's not just another bite to eat. Trusting God to show us what does this mean because I think we can be reverent and joyful at the same time. Reverence doesn't mean we have to walk in with long, heavy face. We can be reverent. We can be holy in our demeanor towards God, but smiling at the same time. There's a weight of the moment that we need to begin to understand. That when we eat of the bread, when we drink of the cup, it's a different meal. Whether it is a meal meal or whether it's just a snack type thing like we do now, I don't even know if it counts as a snack. See, the point isn't the meal. Although I think there's a blessing in the meal. I mentioned that first night. I want us to eat together in small groups and most of us already do. The point is the reverence, the participation in the body of Christ. And I don't think I participate in the body of Christ more when I'm eating a big piece of bread than when I'm eating a small piece of bread. I don't think that's how it works. I could be wrong. I don't think that's what it's about. When I participate in the body of Christ, there is a weightiness that comes with it. There's a weightiness that Paul says, you could die. As a matter of fact, some of you have died. Part of me is trusting God, and, and please hear my heart. I'd love us to get to the place again where we have such reverence, where we have such an understanding of communion that people would actually die. if we took it in an unworthy manner. We would be so powerful in our midst again, whereas a community, and I believe God is not only speaking to us as a church about it, we'll see a friend of ours wrote a song and we're going to perhaps sing it or allow it to minister to us in a moment. About a year ago, they finally finished recording it and it happened, remember I said last week, I'm going to be speaking about it this week. This week, they released the song. Literally, just two or three days ago. They released a song about breaking bread. I believe God is speaking to His church about the power, the beauty, the invitation to participate in the body and the blood of Christ. Together with the invitation comes an understanding that this is not a light thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a holy thing. As you finish this passage, he says, So then, my brothers, once again, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Don't arrive here hungry. I need to run to the front of the queue, bump other people out of the way because I'm hungry. That's not what this meal is about. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. The other stuff can wait. This can't. The other stuff that you guys are getting wrong, I'm on my way. I'll chat to you guys when I get there. But this needs to be addressed now. This was important. We're going to, in just a moment, we're going to have communion together. I want to invite us to participate in the body of Christ. I want to warn you. Don't do it lightly. We're going to take a moment to reflect now. I want to repeat what I said. Unworthiness isn't about the sin in my life. It's about whether I allow Jesus to come and sort out that sin. And then I want to invite you. As I said, we're figuring this out. We're probably going to laugh a year from now, but it's only because we're going to have grown. Next week, Easter weekend, public holiday, a bunch of us aren't here. The following week is a semi-normal week again. The next week is a public holiday again. The in-between week, the Saturday, the Sunday afternoon, after the morning service, we're going to have a church bride here in this court. The meal together. Not just any meal. Uh, first day of the week, the church came together to have a meal. Here. I want to invite you to come and join us now. To come and experience, I'm trusting that God is going to bring something of a participation in His body of what that means, that that which we can only receive in communion from Him.
I'm going to ask him, I'm praying for him that he come and begin to establish that to us. So we're going to try and do this relatively regularly, not for now, at least as this early church seems to have done once a week on the first Monday of, or the, not the first Monday, the first day of the week. We're not going to do it weekly as yet, but we are going to try and do it regularly. It's not compulsory. But I do believe it's going to be life. I believe God's going to come and do something in our eating together, which He says in Scripture He does in our eating together. And so there's something about eating, having communion by ourselves, but all of these Scriptures speak about come together to eat. There has to be something in there. So two weeks from today, we're going to come together to eat. I invite you to join us. You can still come to the evening service, but come at least for the meal. So it'll be about like 12 o'clock, the meal. We'll have lunch together. We'll have a meal together. We're still figuring out exactly what that means. Help us figure it out. Let's have a meal together. Let's come together to eat. And let's trust God that when we come together, it won't be like Paul says to this church, it is not the Lord's Supper. But let us come together. Let us pray. Let us ask God, God, make this. Help us to make this the Lord's Supper that we come we're going to watch a, a music video, as I said, about that song that my friends wrote. Which, by the way, these are some of the guys who are going to be joining us for our worship weekend. As we listen to this, I want us to examine ourselves. The scripture says we should. To ask God to show us what are the areas in which He wants to work, the areas we need to surrender to Him. We're going to hand out the elements of communion as well. And then afterwards, when the song is done, we'll take a moment and have communion, have communion, have participation in the body and the blood of Christ together. Then let's do that as Yaakov. Set a place for you at the table. We make space, no. Come and eat with us. Come and eat with us. You provide.
Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.org.